you send a patient with dysphagia for a barium swallow and it comes back saying cricopharyngeal hypertrophy or a small pouch. And then it's a question of what do you do with those patients? And I really, really work hard to explain to the patient what I'm doing all the way through. Welcome back to BLA Connections, A Clear Voice. I'm your host, Natalie Watson, and I'm delighted to bring you discussions and insights from experts from across the globe on all things laryngology. Our first series brought you information, discussions and perceptions on COVID-19 and laryngology. Throughout series three, we will continue to broaden your horizons and inform you about different subjects within laryngology. In today's episode, we want to speak more about a lesser known area in laryngology, the management of cricopharyngeal hypertrophy and small pharyngeal pouches. To talk about this in more detail is Kate Heathcote. She's a consultant laryngologist from Poole Hospital Foundation Trust on the south coast of England. As fellow to Professor Jean-Paul Marie in Rouen, France, she learned techniques of laryngeal renovation, which she has continued to develop, research and introduce into the UK. A further laryngology fellowship at the RNT&E focused on airway procedures with Guri Sandhu, our president, and phonosurgery with John Rubin. She has a comprehensive NHS laryngology service in Poole, offering a voice clinic and a laryngology treatment clinic, the latter in which she treats many laryngological symptoms, one of which dysphagia she's going to focus on today. Thank you so much for joining us, Kate. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've uh, so enjoyed this series so far, so it's an honour to be invited to talk. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here today. So, what got you interested in dysphagia? Well, I suppose, ultimately, the scale and complexity of the problem, as well as a feeling that I didn't have a clear treatment strategy to rely on. So, how do you approach the uh, management of cricopharyngeal hypertrophy and small pharyngeal pouches? Well, I'm very fortunate to be supported by a dynamic team of gastroenterologists, speech therapists and physiologists. And certainly I think this is the uh, optimum environment for managing particularly the more complex cases. And it's important within this MDT to consider all aspects of swallowing and the underlying diagnoses that could be causing your cryopharyngeal dysfunction, as well as the effects of aging, which obviously happen in everyone. So what is a, a cricopharyngeal hypertrophy for people who may not know? Cricopharyngeal hypertrophy is a situation where the muscle at the top of the esophagus, so what's known as the upper esophageal sphincter, is over tight. And this is basically um, a muscle that needs to relax to allow swallowing to occur, to allow a food bolus to pass from the pharynx into the esophagus. But in the situation that it doesn't relax appropriately, then this will cause dysphagia, what we call upper dysphagia. And patients will complain of having problems with that initial moving the food bolus into the esophagus. And it can ultimately lead to choking and aspiration. If you, if you like, it's where the muscle has become over tight. And when it's been over tight for a prolonged period of time, if you imagine that the pharynx is trying to push food boluses through an overtight muscle that leads to a high pressure situation above the muscle and then you start to get a pharyngeal pouch. And I think everyone is very familiar with large pharyngeal pouches and certainly I remember during my training it was something that we treated on a regular basis, the pharyngeal pouches. 
And I think they have a fairly standard treatment approach, which is basically myotomy, most commonly now by endoscopic stapling. But I think the area that is less well dealt with is where the cricopharyngeal hypertrophy is causing dysphagia and there may or may not be a small pouch present or just a slight bulge present when you do the barium swallow. And so I think that it's that area that I found a particular diagnostic quandary in that you send a patient with dysphagia for a barium swallow and it comes back saying cricopharyngeal hypertrophy or small pouch. And then it's a question of what do you do with those patients? And the more barium swallows that you do, the more you will find. And so how do you decide who has any intervention in the office? Or how do you decide who goes straight for surgical management? So if you consider the number of barium swallows that are done, there'll be a significant number that identify cricopharyngeal hypertrophy where the patient is fairly asymptomatic. And I think that's where it's really important that you treat the individual. You can see cricopharyngeal hypertrophy on a barium swallow and it'll come back in the report. And then you'll think, should I do something about that or should I not? And the key, as with you know a lot of what we do, is it causing a problem? I think with more and more investigations, we identify more and more you know, potential abnormalities. And then it's really important to go back to the individual to see what problems those are causing, because you will find people with cricopharyngeal hypertrophy in a a good, what they call a bar there, who have very uh, limited symptoms. Whereas others, it is very debilitating. So obviously, that's uh, the degree of hypertrophy in a barium swallow is only a snapshot, and may just be done with a liquid and without using a marshmallow bolus or whatever. So I think it's important not just to treat the barium swallow, but to treat the the individual. So if you found that someone was particularly symptomatic, but they only had a small cricopharyngeal bar or hypertrophy on the barium swallow, what would you offer them? I think when I was not specialized as a as a laryngologist, but was more of a generalist, I would do endoscopic stapling for pharyngeal pouches. And beyond that, I didn't really have a consideration for what to do about a small um, pouch. And I think the most important thing to say is that endoscopic stapling does not treat a small pouch because by definition, your endoscope or your stapler is not getting across the whole of the muscle. So you're not achieving a myotomy because you cannot get your your stapler across the whole length of the muscle. I'm sure there'll be people that are saying, oh, well, I staple small pouches and the patients benefit. But I suspect that the benefit actually comes from the fact that you've dilated cricopharyngeus to an extent by inserting the scope. But when you think that that's what you're achieving by doing that, you can much better and more safely achieve that by doing a balloon dilation. So if you accept the fact that you're not doing a formal myotomy and dividing the entire muscle, then doing a balloon dilation is a much safer approach, lower risks, and can be done under local anesthetic in the clinic. So in your hands, once the decision has been agreed that you're going to do an in-office 
local anaesthetic balloon dilatation. Can you take us through the technique you employ? So that decision about doing the balloon dilation is slightly dependent on the patient wishes, slightly Mm -hmm. dependent on their symptomatology and also their fitness for general anaesthetic. When we've decided that uh, balloon dilation is the best approach, it's a local anaesthetic. They come into my treatment clinic just as a normal clinic appointment. I do ask them to starve for a couple of hours beforehand, and I do take the opportunity to perform a TNO. So I will look at the lower esophageal sphincter. And the importance of that is that lower esophageal sphincter and upper esophageal sphincter ultimately work together with the purpose of preventing reflux. And whereby I'm fairly confident that by doing a balloon dilation, I'm not going to destroy the the function of the upper esophageal sphincter by simple balloon dilation to 20 millimeters. It it, it gives me information about how effective the function of the lower esophageal sphincter is, have they got a hiatus hernia? Because if you look at the underlying causes for upper esophageal sphincter dysfunction, particularly you know hypertrophy and small pouch, then reflux is the major cause of that. So before I do my dilation, I want to know what the function of the lower esophageal sphincter is. Have they got a hiatus hernia? Therefore, when I dilate this, am I likely to have to you know, really battle with their reflux to prevent this going back into spasm. So I think it just helps to inform the patient about the likelihood of success of the dilation, um, because obviously if they've got really severe reflux, then the chances are that muscle will just tighten up again. And that also allows me to make a sort of treatment plan for them in terms of how aggressive I feel I need to be with PPIs, alginates, lifestyle, etc. So I always do a full TNO. And then insert a guide wire through my transnasal endoscope, through the channel in the endoscope. And over the guide wire, I railroad a balloon for cracopharyngeal hypertrophy where there's no scarring and where I've got a nice flexible uh, mucosa and, and muscle. Then I always just plan to do a dilation to 20 millimeters. Mm-hmm. There'll be other areas where I won't want to use such a balloon as big for, on the first occasion, and that would be more scarring off the radiotherapy, etc. But if you've got a pure cracopharyngeal hypertrophy, then um, just going straight for an 18 to 20 millimeters with a plan to take it up to 20 millimeters, I put some local anesthetic spray in the nose. But beyond that's it. I inflate the balloon for a minute. And I really, really work hard to explain to the patient what I'm doing all the way through. It's not very pleasant. And I tell them in advance that it's not going to be very pleasant. I'll tell them that they will feel as though their throat is and their airway is being obstructed, but that I'm watching their airway all the time and that their breathing is fine. Um, and uh, they just might have to grip onto the chair for for the minute that the balloon is actually inflated, because I think that is quite an uncomfortable feeling. But I've very rarely had issues with patients not actually managing to have the procedure it's quite common isn't it when you've got that balloon dilated that they just want to swallow yes exactly (laughs) yes and it needs to be held firmly at the nostril so yeah there's a little sometimes a little fight going on when they swallow it pushes the balloon out are there any tips or tricks that you would have apart from holding it quite tightly with your technique 
I mean, slightly sort of verbal hypnotherapy, you know, I think it's working with the team regularly. So you have the same team in the clinic with you and really keeping the patients calm. Because as you say, as soon as they start to panic, particularly they might panic about their, their breathing and their swallowing. And then everything gets worse because as soon as they try to swallow against you, they set the balloon down and the balloon pops up. And, and so just really trying to keep the, the patient calm. I, I did used to use Instiller gel, but I actually didn't find it made much difference. It can sting a little bit as they swallow it. And I think um, if you can get away with as little local anesthetic, it's almost better because I think local anesthetic also removes some of the sensation and can give them that feeling of a lump in their throat and can give them a feeling that they can't breathe. So I, I don't I don't use the Instiller gel now unless I'm doing something slightly more aggressive. Right. So what are the risks of the in-office procedures that you're doing? I've been doing in-office balloon dilations for a variety of causes for eight years now. I have to touch some wood here, but I have never had a perforation. I have had perforations in theatre from dilations, but I've never had an in-office perforation. Um, so really the the only risk now that I consent patients for is of epistaxis. Having said that, I don't stop their anticoagulants because a lot of these patients are quite complex and are on anticoagulants. So I don't, that's for cricopharyngeal hypertrophy uh, and small pouch. I, I don't stop their anticoagulants. So does that mean you keep them on antiplatelets like aspirin and clopidogrel as well as the kind of newer DOAX? Yeah. Mm. You know, I go very carefully. Uh, yeah. And I suppose it's just, I haven't had, I haven't had the problems. I'm sure, you know, if I'd had a problem, then I'd probably make sure everyone came off it. But, you know, like all these things, it's a balance of, of the risks and benefits. And I think a lot of these people have pretty good indications for remaining on their anticoagulants. And as I haven't had a problem with it, and I've had some minor nosebleeds, but I haven't had to admit anyone due to epistaxis. Yeah, um, I was lucky we also can stop that too in the clinic, yes. thankfully. <laughs> yeah, there was a reason. Um, so... Just moving on, if you have uh, made a decision that actually either the in-office balloon dilatation hasn't got rid of all their symptoms or they come back a bit later with a larger pharyngeal pouch or if they present with a larger pharyngeal pouch and you decide to go for some surgery under general anaesthetic, what is your preferred method of surgery and why? So, so there certainly are cases where I will go straight for surgery where there is a significant pouch. So if there is a, if there is a significant pouch but not large enough to staple, so I will offer those balloon dilation if they're decrepit and have high risk of general anesthetic, but otherwise I will offer them an endoscopic laser procedure. So I do the myotomy, I use the VIDA endoscope and do a microscope mounted CO2 laser division um, of the muscle. Personally, I don't suture the edges. I put tissue into the wound. I do keep them in until I'm reassured by a barium swallow or a contrast swallow that they haven't got a, a leak. So, you know, in that way, I consider it a not minor intervention Whereas a, a, a larger pouch that can be stapled is, if you like, is a fairly routine minor intervention and patients are likely to get home the next day. Whereas a CO2 laser um, division, 
I'm probably on the cautious side, but I personally like to keep patients in until I've had a contrast swallow to to confirm that there's no that there's no leak. Uh, did you did you say you do that the next day? Well, uh, you know, it, it all depends on the availability, doesn't it? And if I have an operating list on a Friday and then the next day is a Saturday, then they'll end up staying until the Monday. So, you know, I will get it as soon as it is reasonable. Possible. Um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And the tissue, you were saying you put it in the wound. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you put it in the base of the wound or do you put it around these edges of the... Of the- I, just fill, I just fill the in, incision up with tissue. And there's a little bit of a technique to that in that the tissue obviously goes off very quickly and so I, I use a, a butterfly with a long bit of tubing and then I cut the butterfly off so I've just got a long bit of tubing and I hold the tubing with some crocodile forceps put it in the wound and and squirt other techniques of keeping the butterfly needle on I found it all coagulates before it actually comes out of the needle and then I just end up with a blob on the end of my needle so um, I do just use that little bit of tubing which I hold in the crocodile forceps put into the wound and, and squeeze it in. Fabulous. Great tip and trick. So what are the post-op recommendations that you advise and how successful do you and your patients find the treatment? So as I said previously, it's really critical to control their reflux. I found that with good control of the reflux, then I did do a study on, on my first 50 patients looking at where four months post-operatively I did a barium swallow and I showed that there was the majority of patients still had barium swallow as well as eat 10 score evidence of improvement. And I think that controlling the reflux is a big part of that. And I very much explain that to them. And having been through it, they're really quite keen not to go through it again. And so long as you threaten them with a repeat procedure, they're pretty compliant with the treatment. Oh, wow. So do you put them on anti-reflux medications when they come in with the symptoms before you do the barium swallow? Or is it just something that you start afterwards? I don't start PPIs on the initial consultation if they haven't got gastric symptoms and heartburn. So I just do lifestyle and alginates. But if I've done a dilation... And if there's evidence of lurosophageal dysfunction, because I think there is a chemical trigger to the upper esophageal sphincter being triggered, I will put them also on PPIs. Right. And how long do you normally keep them on it, generally? So I'll see them three months post-dilation. And if after they're still doing well, then I think about stopping the PPIs. If they have any continuing gastric and heartburn symptoms then I want to keep them on the PPIs and I will warn them that they'll have a rebound on stopping the PPIs and then to go back to the doctor to restart PPIs if they, they're starting to have any of those symptoms back. But I really try and not use PPIs unless they've got sort of lower symptoms. And that's again the, the benefit of being able to do a TNO in the office and being able to see it and see physical Mm. symptoms. It's a real advantage for laryngologists as well to be able to do this. Well, I think previously we've always just treated the upper esophageal sphincter in in isolation because we felt that that was our bounds and we didn't think too much about what what went on before. But I think what Tino has really allowed us to do is to, to cross that divide and also very much shake hands with the gastroenterologists and look at these in a multidisciplinary way 
definitely my gastroenterologists are, are really key to my to my service. So th- I might do a balloon dilation in the first instance, but obviously there's a proportion of these patients that might require a myotomy. And those then I'm considering actually totally defunctioning the upper esophageal sphincter. And in those, it's really important to know what the function of the lower esophageal sphincter is because you can make patients worse. When you cut the upper sphincter, you are then, and if they've got a defunctioning lower sphincter, then you are leaving them open to severe reflux and, and aspiration. And that's where the physiologists come in. So I get dual probe manometry on those. There is a not insignificant number of patients that don't manage dual probe manometry because of the presence of the pouch. They physically can't get the probe in. But ideally, I would like to do that and certainly to do a TNO and assess the lower esophageal myself in, in the situation where um, the dual probe hasn't been possible. And I've had patients where they've had major upper sphincter symptoms, but they've got really no lower sphincter function. And then uh, the gastroenterologists will recommend having fundoplication prior to dividing the upper sphincter, at least one of the sphincters operating before you, you divide the other. And you mentioned the MDT earlier on. Do you meet regularly? Yes, uh, once a week. Once a week. Great. Wow. Virtually, as you do these days. Yeah, it should just make it easier, doesn't it, with with all the different um, MDTs to do everything virtually, so it's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your experience of the management of dysphagia, upper dysphagia, and it being caused by cricopharyngeal hypertrophy in some cases, and in some cases even go on to being small pharyngeal pouches. Have you got any take-home messages that you'd like the listener to leave with today? Well, I suppose um, it's really important to tailor the treatment to the individual. So consider the risk factors of the treatment you're offering against the the, uh, status of the patient and the impact of symptoms on their, their quality and quantity of life. And I think also that comprehensive efficient and effective treatment requires you to offer a range of procedures with multidisciplinary decision making. Absolutely fantastic. Well, you're a big advocate for MDT decision making and actually empowering laryngologists to to be really part of the dysphagia team. So thank you very much for that. And thank you for sharing all your insights into the management of CP hypertrophy and small pharyngeal pouches. Well, thank you very much for having me. So we hope you've enjoyed listening. This has been BLA Connections, A Clear Voice. I have been your host, Natalie Watson. Our full series can be found in the podcast provider of your choice, or you will find all stored on our BLA Connect app for easy access. We would also love to hear from you. Please feel free to email with any topics you would like us to explore, any questions you have, along with any suggested experts you would like to hear from. Also, if you'd like to contribute to these podcasts, please email inquiries at britishlaryngological.org. Thank you for listening, and we hope you found our podcast informative. Please remember to subscribe and do leave a review with your podcast provider. We do appreciate your likes, subscribes, and reviews.